0: Good morning and a hearty welcome to Castle Hill Church. Um, a happy Sabbath to you all um, and uh, I think the weather's looking good out there. I'm sure we've uh, probably a bit more dressed now than uh, what we were since Dallas's last uh, invitation of us last week with sitting on our couches um, and uh, we're pretty excited this week we've got some good stuff happening at church um, Number one, if we maybe just have a look, and you're probably wondering what all these are here. Um, Greg Hines has, uh, you know, kindly um, sort of supported us here by putting these on display. These are bonsais, as you can see, both of them. In the back here, if you're wondering where the Castle Hill is going on a holiday to space, um, probably not. This has just been part of uh, the week of worship for both our campuses here for junior school being Cullyville and Castle Hill, so quite an exciting time for our young ones. Um, Yeah, and something to ponder on for us, um, you know, as we're sitting in our various places, you know, we've been hearing from people what it's like, you know, being away from church and that, and it's a tough one, but I think um, here's a challenge to us, as you know, we always speak to people, and the challenge is, you know, what's your comeback story going to be like? when you know we return um and i think a key thing while we're sitting there it's perfect opportunity for us to uh, serve each other our neighbors you know get them to come over for a cuppa be it water or juice or coffee or anything um you know perfect moments like that Um, and i think as we travel along you know through church life and it's difficult with COVID, but um, there's an opportunity where we don't have to put things on ice, you know. I think God is still purposing us uh, to do wondrous things. You know, we've got that Holy Spirit to work with, and we've got to claim these things. Um, and that's a huge motivation. I think last week, and probably Pablo will fill you in as well, of you know, teams going out to serve others and uh, just amazing moments. Um, and then this, we've got the Sabbath school um, still running as well. Um, A lot of people are connected to that, and uh, yeah, if we can just inspire each other, I know it's real tedious that we all sit on computers and things throughout the week with Zoom, but let's take the opportunity to keep connected. We've got Clancy as well, um, that's doing a uh, sermon, and uh, you know, it's quite exciting to the way she presents and how God's going to talk through her, so I think that's, you know, mighty moments over there as well. Just as I finish, I think quite a good thing to share with, and it's just a little testament. Um, I don't want to take up too much time. Um, I was feeling pretty flat uh, a few months ago, and I thought, you know what, I can do something different. You know, it's it's not all about me. And going through the drive through at Hornsby McDonald's, uh, hot chocolate and banana loaf. And something struck me, and I said, well, you know, what can I do? And I see this guy in the back of the youth, the tradie, um, you know, he's ordering his, and I get up to the lady to pay for my stuff, and I said, well, what's he ordered? He says, oh, he's got a muffin and egg and, and a coffee. I said, i tell you what, pay, you know, I'll pay for his, I'll pay for mine. She says, oh, are you sure? I said, yep, let's do that. And uh, I paid for both, and I said, look, don't tell him I have paid, but just tell him, Paid in full. That was all I left. And I sort of pulled on to collect my um, food at the next window. And there I was watching him in the rear view mirror. And you could just see the delight in this guy's face like, you know, total victory because, you know, he scored a meal, didn't have to pay. But, you know, that changed my whole attitude that day in terms of, you know, what God is doing and how grateful we need to be. So, you know, do something inspiring out there and, you know, Enjoy this morning's program and yeah, let us keep our eyes fixed on Christ, amen.
1: In the days of the judges, there was famine in the land. Now the days of the judges were a wild time to live. They were a time of uncertainty, of violence, of fighting. As the last verse in Judges says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Unlike the nations around them, God had not installed a king over Israel because God was to be their king. He was to lead them. And in those days, there was a man whose name reflected that reality. His name was Elimelech, which means my God is king. The book of Ruth tells part of his story. Now, I'm going to be reading quite a bit of this uh, narrative today. You might like to follow along with me. The book of Ruth is found right near the start just after the book of Judges. And I'm going to begin reading right at the beginning in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. In the days when the judges ruled Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Marlon and Kilion, They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. So in the time of famine in the Promised Land, Elimelech takes his family to Moab. Now, what do we know about the relationship between the Israelites and the Moabites? Well, during the Exodus, as the children of Israel passed by, the king of Moab asked the prophet Balaam to curse the Israelites, now, it didn't work out too well, but you pick up the attitude. That story is found in Numbers 22. And then in Numbers 25, we have the story of a number of Moabite women seducing some of the Israelite men. They convinced them to worship their gods, and because of this, many people die. So Moab was not really one of the places you would expect a God-fearing Israelite to take his family. But in a time of drought and famine, there was something Moab had going for it. Up on the plateau next to the Dead Sea, Moab had an abundant water supply, fertile soil and a semi-tropical climate. So here Elimelech takes his family away from the promised land to Moab. We don't know how long Elimelech himself spent there or whether or not he continued to follow the ways of the Lord. Because sometime after they had arrived, the Bible tells us, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Now remember that these two sons have the name Marlon and Kilion. The Old Testament is full of these little clues about what's going to happen, tucked into seemingly ordinary descriptions. Here, the name of these two men given on an ominous clue because these names mean sickly and pining. And verse 5 confirms the premonition given by their names. About 10 years later, both Marlon and Killion died. This left Naomi alone, without her two sons or her husband. Naomi is left desolate, without any real hope for the future. She is an Israelite widow in a foreign land, with no clan, no male relatives, no community to protect and care for her. The only family she has are her two daughters-in-law. The story tells us that Naomi hears that Israel is once again giving food, that rain has come, that the famine is over. And so she decides to leave, to return to her home in Bethlehem. Now, in the ancient world, a woman married into her husband's family. She didn't take on his name so much as take on a whole new life. She was part of his family, part of his tribe, no longer a part of her own in the same way that she had been. So it should be no real surprise that these two daughters-in-law of Naomi insist on coming with her. She agrees at first and they travel together to the border, but when they get there, Naomi tells them to go back. What has she to offer them? What is waiting for her when she returns to Bethlehem? She can't know. There is no certainty. And rather than take them to an uncertain future, she begs them to go home. She offers them the chance to return to a familiar life. Go home, she says. Return to the families that you were born to. Marry again. Go to safety, not to the unknown. Both Ruth and Orpah continually refuse. And Naomi says this in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 1. Naomi replied, Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who would grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were able to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his hand against me. The law of Leverite marriage made it an obligation for the brother of a dead man to provide his widow with children. This would do two, two things. It would ensure her future security and make sure the name of the dead man was not lost to keep him alive. The child born from this union would be called the son of the woman's first husband. He would receive his inheritance. But there are no brothers. Naomi has no more sons. She has no security. She has no safety to offer these two women. And what kind of welcome could she offer them? If they returned with her, would they be welcomed? Or would they be shut out of friendship and mistrusted as outsiders and foreign wives? She urges them to go back to safety, to go back to the familiar. She begs them to go back and live the life they always expected they would have to go into the future that they can be certain of. Oprah is convinced and she leaves. But Ruth, Ruth stays and she utters these famous words in verses 16 to 17 of chapter one. Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. In saying these words and in using a traditional Israelite oath, may God sort me out if I don't do the things that I say I will. She's leaving behind the life that she knew. She's leaving behind the family and religion that she had grown up with. She's leaving behind any practices considered outside of what was okay in Israel. She states that she wants to have faith in the God of Israel and she wants to be a convert to belief in the one true God. In doing this, she leaves behind the worship of Baal, of Ashtoreth and the child sacrifice historians suspect was part of the worship of the Moabite God, Chemosh. Ruth leaves her whole life and her whole world behind her for the God of Israel. The two women set off towards Bethlehem. The trade routes would have taken them around the Dead Sea and through Jericho before they went all the way to Bethlehem. It's about 115 kilometers on foot, 1,400 meters down from the plateau and then 1,200 meters up to Bethlehem. It was a famously dangerous journey as well as being very physically demanding. But no doubt with God's protection, Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, at the time of the spring feasts to God, Passover, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and the Feast of Weeks, which we know by the Greek name Pentecost. They would have been there in time to see the first stalks of barley presented to God in thanks for the land and for the food it provided. And after a decade of famine, a particularly extra special time to arrive. We think of harvest as being at the end of summer, because that's what it is here, But in ancient Israel, grain would have been planted at the start of winter to take advantage of the rain and harvested before the heat of summer. A calendar of the planting and harvest schedule was discovered written on a limestone tablet in Giza, and this is a translation to give you an idea of the kind of rhythm and cycle that this story is set in. Two months to pick olives, two months to plant grain, two months to plant vegetables, a month to hoe up flax, a month to harvest barley a month to reap and thresh the wheat, two months to tend their vines, and a month to gather summer fruit. When God gave agricultural laws to the Israelites, he made provision for those who were poor or outside, those who did not have fields and vines and fruit trees. Leviticus 19, verse 9 to 10 says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest, Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Similarly, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 19 to 20, God commanded, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf of grain, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners living among you, the orphans and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the orphan and the widow. This care for the vulnerable, those without the protective structure of a family and a community and a clan, was built into the fundamental structure of the Israelite economy. The law of God made certain that care for the marginalized was a core concern, that one that was more important than maximising profits or productivity. As part of the group entitled to glean, once they are settled in the area around Bethlehem, Ruth asks for Naomi's permission to go and gather grain. And chapter 2 starts with some background information. In verses 1 to 3 it says, Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. As it happens, Ruth finds herself in the fields of one of the people who can help her and her mother-in-law, a male relative. Her hard work does not go unnoticed. Boaz asks his foreman, who is this new gleaner in the field? And when he is told that she's a relative, he goes to her and encourages her to stay in his fields throughout the harvest season, to drink from his water jars, to work amongst his servants rather than behind them, to not be alone. When the noon meal comes, he provides her with food, more than she can eat. And when she goes back to Glean, he makes sure that she is safe. In verses 15 to 16 it says, When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her, and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. Through her hard work and the kindness of Boaz and his workers, she gleans that day around 13 kilos of barley. Her mother-in-law is amazed at the kindness that has been shown to them, and she wants to know, whose field were you in? And when she finds out it is Boaz, she cries out for God to bless him. She tells Ruth what we as the reader already know, that this is a relative, that Boaz is close to their family, that he is a kinsman redeemer. And this fact is the hinge the rest of the story swings on. When the Lord gave Israel the land of Canaan, he stipulated that they would not be like the other nations. Land could not be bought or sold the same way that the countries around them allowed. The people of Israel were to recognize that the land was an inheritance to God, that it was for all of them. Every 50 years, all land that had been sold to someone else to use was to return to its ancestral family, if it had not already been redeemed. To sell land was to sell the right to use it up until the next year of Jubilee. Recognising that Boaz is a close relative, Naomi makes a plan to ensure both her own ongoing welfare and the future security for Ruth. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 and then 8 to 9... It says this. One day Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found you a permanent home so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he has been very kind by letting you gather grain with his, with his young women. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he is finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down, then go and uncover his feet and lie down there too. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. You are my family guardian. Or as other translations put it, you are a kinsman redeemer. Laying at his feet in the middle of the night, Ruth asks Boaz to come to her aid and the aid of her mother-in-law by redeeming their land. Her request that Boaz spread his garment over her is understood by Jewish rabbis as a proposal of marriage. The word used here for garment literally means wing. Ruth asks Boaz to spread his wings over her and give her protection. It is not many verses since he said a very similar thing to her. In chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz says to Ruth, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She was asking a lot of Boaz. Not only for this man to buy back her family land, but to marry her and give her a child. A child who would not be counted as his own, but rather as the son of Marlon. A son who would inherit the land that she was asking Boaz to buy. Boaz praises Ruth's kindness, her family loyalty, and how good she is. He promises to do the right thing by her if he can Boaz, as we've seen through his treatment of Ruth the gleaner, takes the law of God very seriously. He recognises that although she has asked him to redeem, there is another relative with a closer claim to the use of the land, one who might buy it for himself, one who might not also take the duty of providing for Ruth and Naomi as seriously as he does. He sends her home with about 30 kilograms of threshed grain, probably as much as she could physically carry, and a promise that he will settle the matter that day. Boaz goes to the gates of Bethlehem, and he sits and gathers 10 elders and this closer relative. When they are all there, he is ready to begin. The gate of Bethlehem was probably the only opening in the wall of the city. It was the usual place to conduct legal transactions. This is not a secret deal behind closed doors in the room where it happened. Everyone is walking past this place. They're going out to fill their water jugs, to check on their own harvests. Everyone who walked past would have seen the gathering of 10 elders and they would have known that something was up. In chapter 4, verses 2 to 4, we find that Boaz offers the land to the cousin. Boaz called the 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And he said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. This sale, or rather the sale of the right to redeem the land would allow this relative to use the land until the time of Jubilee returned it to the original owners. In this case, that, of course, should have been to Ruth's now-dead husband. But with no male children to inherit, this close relative was in line to not only use the land for the present time, but to add it to his own land permanently and pass it on to his children. Paying Naomi for the right to use the land between now and the year of Jubilee would give Naomi and Ruth something to live on, but not long-term security. This close relative is quite happy about this arrangement. He can expand his own farm, he can increase his wealth and production and pass on that blessing to the family that he has. But when Boaz mentions the extra obligations that he is describing as essential, things change in verses 5 to 6. Then Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow, That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. This is a different thing. To gain the use of valuable land his own son would inherit was good, but to have to hand over what he had paid for to a son who would not even be his was a whole different thing. It was too much to ask. Boaz then steps in and does both what the law demanded, but also what he had promised. He steps in to do what has no obvious benefit to himself. In chapter 4, verse 9 to 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all of the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Marlon, and with the land I have acquired Ruth the Moabite, widow of Marlon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. In doing this, Ruth and Boaz became the great-grandparents of King David and entered into the line of the Messiah who had been promised. Ruth gave birth to a son who was called the son of Naomi, a son who brought back to life the dead and buried hopes of the future they were sure they would never have. The son was named Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. By leaving behind her old life, the one that she was born to, the future that she expected, the life that seemed certain that she was supposed to have, she gained a new future. A future that led not only to her own security and hopes, but a future that gave us all our hope. A future through her descendants that led to the birth of Christ Jesus. A future infinitely bigger than any she could have hoped for or dreamed of. Right now seems a good time to reflect on this story. Right now when we are faced with uncertainty over the future, when our personal situations are less sure than they were a year ago or six months ago because of circumstances outside our control, right now it is good to remember that we serve a God who specialises in hope and in futures bigger and better than we can dream for ourselves. This story, the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, is one of the best known in the Old Testament. It's only a few pages long. But it is a story full of love and loyalty and sacrifice, and redemption. It is a story that in many ways mirrors the Christian experience. Like Ruth, we are in a way born outsiders. We have all done things that we are not proud of. We have all felt the pain of broken promises and dashed hopes. We all know the pain of sin done by us and to us. But like Ruth, we are invited into the people of God and the family of God. Like Ruth, it doesn't matter where we are born or who we are or who we have been. All that matters is that through faith in God, we step into his promises and into the future that he gives us. Like Naomi, we can live generously and with love and the best interest of others at heart. Naomi's actions began as focused on her own future. She was going home, but then on providing a future for her daughter-in-law we as members of the family of God are called to extend love and care and friendship to those who join our community. Like the kindness Boaz showed to Ruth, giving her protection, feeding her, giving her access to water, God offers us his protection. He offers to spread his wings over us, to keep us safe. He gives us living water to drink and he is the bread of life. Like Ruth, We all have a guardian, a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer for the scriptures call Christ our brother. Christ offers to buy back our future. In fact, he already has. Through his death and through his resurrection, we are all offered eternal life, a future bigger and brighter and bolder than any we could dream of ourselves. He calls all of us to turn to him, to follow his ways, to walk in his path, to hear his voice and to find our true home in him. Let's pray together. O oh God, our Father, thank you for your love, your guidance and your comfort. We thank you for your promise of an eternal future with you and with all who are part of the family of God. We praise you for, our, your, we praise you for your guidance and the gift of your spirit, which leads us on the path you have for us. As we walk our life's journey, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and our hands extended to help those around us. Give us wisdom. Give us peace. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.